This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing. Hi, and welcome to Graphic Novel TK. I'm Allison Wilgus. And I'm Gina Gagliano. Today we're talking to storyboard artist and cartoonist Nyla Magruder, specifically about the cartoonist side of her job and what it's like to work with a publisher. Uh, Nyla, can you tell us a little about who you are, how you got into comics, and what you're doing right now? Uh, sure. I went to college for animation, and that was my primary focus when I graduated. But I, yeah, I moved out to Los Angeles, and while I was trying to break into the industry, I was unemployed and kind of needed something to do, something to take my mind off of the stress and frustration of job hunting. So I decided to start a webcomic. And I w- was updating that in my free time, like very, very soon after I uploaded the first page of this comic, which is called MFK, by the way, um, I got a job. So immediately I was working full time and then also working on this webcomic in my free time. And I did this for about three years and ended up submitting MFK for a new award called the Dwayne McDuffie Award for Diversity, and it won. And so that kind of shot my comic career to a new level. Uh, Very quickly after that, I got offers to work on other comics. I joined with Callista Brill, who is an editor at First Second Books, to work on a graphic novel. I got hired as a writer at Marvel Comics, and I've been doing all of that stuff ever since. Um, So we're talking today about working with publishers. Can you tell us about the different publishers that you've worked with and what your experience with them has been? Sure. So along with my comics experience, I forgot to mention that I also do children's books. So I've published picture books and I've done cover illustrations for middle grade. The first publisher I worked with was an educational publisher called Learning A to Z. And they they found my postcard uh, at a portfolio showcase at the Los Angeles Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators International Conference that they do every summer. Um, But they reached out and had me illustrate two, I think, two picture books for them. Uh, Then after that, I published my own picture book written and illustrated by me with Fywell and Friends, which is an imprint of Macmillan. From there, I worked with Inside Editions, which traditionally, um, they specialize in like licensed books for intellectual properties. So like they did the Walking Dead cookbook, they do a lot of art books for DC and Marvel and But since they work so much with comic publishers, they decided to start publishing their own comics, and they picked up the first volume of MFK. Gosh, and since then, I've been working with Scholastic, Disney Hyperion, Penguin, and I may be blanking on others. Those those are the main ones that come to mind. And you said you've done some work for Marvel as well? Yes. Also Marvel. (laughs) How could I forget Marvel? Well, it's a very different kind of institution than most of the other places you're talking about. Right, exactly. Uh, the you know the mainstream comics industry operates a little differently than traditional publishing, and particularly children's books. But I have published three books with Marvel. Uh, from the first one was called A Year of Marvels, and that was like an anthology series, and I contributed one story. The next was the Spider Geddon event that they did last year, and that was also an anthology series that I contributed to, and. This year, I wrote the Marvel Rising miniseries for them, and that was five issues. So that's like a pretty wide variety of publishing houses and also imprints with different publishing houses. So like, what kinds of differences have you noticed moving back and forth between these places? Because I think a lot of people tend to mostly work with one, even sometimes even one editor, but certainly one publisher a lot of the time, uh, especially early in their career. So like, have you noticed working with all these different people, like how they differ from each other? Um, you know, with every publisher, it's kind of kind of a complete reset. They all have, well, they all kind of have their, you know, their different 
department setups and different workflow and, you know, particularly jumping from illustrating and writing one book to illustrating a book for another writer to writing, you know, a book and working with another illustrator and, you know, everything from cover illustration to picture books to comics. So the workflow for all of them is sometimes drastically different. Uh, I have, you know, over time and working with so many different art directors and designers and editors, I am kind of getting better at getting launched on a project and knowing, okay, what questions do I need to ask up front so I can move forward so that, you know, we can make this process as seamless as possible. But even so, I feel like in the process of working, you know, through the job, there are always surprises. Like there are always things that I did not predict coming up. And, you know, it it can be because I'm working with brand new characters that have never been envisioned before. And so we have to work through together, you know, what that character is and what they look like. And then sometimes it's, oh, this is a very established character with a history and millions of fans that have expectations. And we have to make sure that we stay true to all of those expectations while also not suffocating me as, you know, the current artist or writer on this property. So, yeah, it's... I, I, str- I struggle to say that there's any commonality between them because <laughs> it all seems to change from project to project and, you know, from team to team. So I'd actually love to hear about what kinds of questions you now ask at the beginnings of projects. Like what kinds of things do you find helpful to check in about when you're starting to work with new people? So as an illustrator, it's always illustration specs. Like, what are the dimensions that this work is going to be printed in? Like what file output do you want? And it's always shocking to me that this is never something that's volunteered by the publisher. I I always have to ask. Oh yeah, that's, that does seem like <laughs> extremely useful information. Uh, are you asking things about like, what your deadlines are or like who you should be asking what kinds of questions or, or does it kind of depend on the yeah. job or contracts no. or fees or yeah like so frequently uh when a publisher does approach me or they approach my agent um you usually they do provide that information up front and yeah like The main things I want to know are what is the scope of the project? Just literally like how many assets are we creating? You know, is it, if it's a cover, is it front, back and spine or is it just front or is it front and spine? Um, If it's like a middle grade book, uh, are there going to be interior illustrations as well? Or is it just going to be chapter headers? Um, in addition to scope, I want to know the rates for, of course, for all of that. And then also the schedule and, and those three are like the main determinants of if I'm going to take a project, basically like, do I have time to do this? Is it going to fit in my schedule? And is the rate that's being offered, um, fair for the amount of time and the amount of work it's going to take? So I assume that some of these jobs are jobs that you're getting kind of through networking or through working with people you've met before. And some of them are with people who have just kind of cold approached you or your agent. Um, When you're going into jobs with new people, do you spend a lot of time talking to other colleagues or talking to your agent about what working with this publisher is like before you start working with them? Haha, no, I almost never ask. Uh, (laughs) I only ask if it's a publisher that I'm already kind of suspicious about or a publisher that maybe I've heard things generally, if it's a brand new publisher that I've never worked before, I kind of take the job itself on face value, but I'm in a pretty comfortable place right now. So, which is, you know, when I was starting out and, you know, when, when most people are starting out, they don't have the privilege to really think about, think like this, but because I've been at this for a while, I, I do have 
the leeway to be very selective with the jobs I take. And usually my, you know, my litmus test for whether or not I'm going to say yes to a job is, can I bear the idea of anyone else working on this? Like, (laughs) if it's something that's so good that I know I'll be jealous if I see anyone else's name attached to it, those are the ones I say yes to. But anything else I can afford to be discerning. And a lot of it for me comes down to schedule. Like, do I have time to, uh, to extend to this? Uh, so, you know, when it comes to taking a job, I tend not to ask other people because for the most part, you know, a lot of the jobs that I do get, the publisher, I'm, you know, sort of familiar with what they're trying to do and what can I, what I can expect from this job. And also, you know, I'm taking it as like, is this a project that I feel that I'm going to be passionate about? And if I'm really, really passionate, I don't think, you know, anyone else's opinion is really going to uh, affect me much. Sometimes I will talk with my agent if, you know, if I do have misgivings, but it sounds like a really good job. We'll kind of hash it out. Like, is this worth my time? For the most part, I go based on the pitch itself. That was a very long answer to a, to a very uh, simple question. I'm sorry. No, it's actually really interesting. Thank you. So for your graphic novels, your, your like original creator own things, um, you know, you worked with insight on MFK. You're working with, Coquila on Creaky Acres, you know, when you were like, okay, I'm going to send this around, my agent's going to have this on submission. How did you say, like, this publisher is the right one for this project? So with MFK, it was very straightforward, because only one publisher made an offer. So it was either take that one or don't get published. Uh, yeah. So that, that was that like simplifies the equation. Yes. Yeah. It was very straightforward. Um, with, with Creaky Acres, that, that book went to auction. And when a book goes to auction, basically multiple publishers are interested and they have to fight it out. You know, the best bid wins and, the bid isn't just about the advance they offer. It's also about the breakdown of royalties and the marketing plan and all these other, you know, bells and whistles that go into the publication of the book. Uh, and with, so with that, we did have to make a choice. We, I think, uh, I think it came down to three publishers, but I also, you know, had Callista as a collaborator. So it wasn't just my decision. It was also hers. And so we talked together about uh, what, you know, what move would be best and eventually uh, settled on Coquila. Calista being Calista Brill, is it editorial director for second book? So she definitely understands the playing field more so than maybe your average person. (laughs) Exactly. Like she has a lot of publishing experience. And so I really valued her opinion when we were making this decision. So we want to kind of dive even deeper into this publishing experience after the like which publisher to decide on. Um, Can you talk to us a little about the comics and graphic novels editorial experience? Like how are you working with editors? What sort of feedback are you getting? What is that process like? And how is it varying from different between different kinds of projects? Okay. Um, let's see. So with Inside Editions, uh, when that project sold, MFK was already a complete package. I was essentially selling them a graphic novel that I had already written and drawn. Uh, it's the first three chapters, which had appeared online. They were completely done. So there was no real editorial process. I, just sent them the files and they got them ready for publication with creaky acres. It's, it's entirely different. We, we went 
out with that book on proposal. So what we were providing, me and Callista together, was a pitch packet consisting of a full outline of the story, a partial script, character descriptions, character sketches, and also a few sample pages of the actual comic. So we essentially, you know, once that book sold, we had to, we had to make it. (laughs) So first up was Callista. She finished the script and we, uh, me, Callista, and also Nami Tripathi at, um, at Coquila, who is, you know, she's the head of the imprint and, and also our editor. Uh, we, worked together on the script uh, to get it the best it could be. And once the script was done, then it was my turn to draw everything. And I'm, I'm still in that process. I'm still drawing uh, Creaky Acres. Uh, it's, it's a very long, illustrating comics is very intense. We've, we've been very collaborative. You know, uh, me and Callista, sometimes we have pretty frequent, like, phone call check-ins to look over the work I'm doing. And she, she as a graphic novel editor, uh, will, you know, give me feedback. And then also we run everything, everything by our editor and, uh, the designer at Coquila as well. Then in contrast, there's Marvel, which I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah. Like every, book I've done with Marvel has been very different. Um, the first two books I did with them were with the same editor uh, named Kathleen Wisniewski. And the first book of Year of Marvels had a very um, unique process. And I think this is the classic Marvel technique. Like essentially... Marvel pitched the story to me. Like I knew going in, this was going to be a rocket raccoon and tippy toe squirrel team up, but it was very open to me, you know, who the villain would be, what the conflict would be. And it's it's like a 15 page story. So it had to be, you know, very quick and simple. And so I pitched some ideas to Kathleen and we settled on one. And then I wrote an outline for the story. So that outline Kathleen then took to an artist, uh, and the artist drew the comic. And actually, it was two artists. It was a layout artist and then the main interior artist. And so they they drew those 15 pages. And so the art was done before I wrote the script. So they hand me the art back, and it was basically, you know, fill in the dialogue, (laughs) So, so the Marvel method, quote unquote. Right, exactly. And yeah, that was the first time I'd ever worked like that. And definitely, like, I didn't think too deeply about dialogue going in. And I'm glad because once I got the final art and looked at it, you know, it, it was definitely like, well, well, I kind of had an idea of some dialogue I wanted, but now none of that works. And so I have to, you know, come up with the surface level, you know, text of the story. You know, it wasn't... it wasn't a terribly frustrating process. It was just kind of new and exciting to me. And I think the product uh, turned out pretty cool. And, you know, during that, I didn't talk with the artist at all. We, we talked later on like Facebook and Twitter. uh, But that was after we had all finished the work. Um, with Spider-Geddon, it was yet again, an entirely different process, possibly because, uh, they were under the wire. So we were, we were moving like super fast. I turned the script around in a few days and then the artists had like maybe a couple of weeks between all of them to get all of the art done. So, so I did the script very quickly and it was a five page story. So from, it didn't take terribly long. And then Kathleen sent the the script over to the artist and then attached us all on an email chain. So we were all talking through the rest of this process. So the, let's see, I think it was the penciler slash inker um, would send the arts and, you know, get it approved. And then the colorist would have their turn and then the letterer. And we were all kind of talking about the art together as it was getting finished. 
Then with so Marvel, just in a giant rambling email thread. Yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't too <laughs> it wasn't too chaotic since it was only five pages. But yeah, it was a very long thread. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> I'm having like a minor anxiety attack just thinking about. This. Oh yeah, it was, it was, and you know, like it sounds fun, but also wow, that's a lot. It was kind. It was kind of a lot because I think I was really busy at the time, and the artist I think was this was like deep into convention season so i think the artist was traveling and so we were all kind of like ah, ah, trying to get this book done <laughs> but it all you know the art was beautiful it it all turned out great um and then with marvel rising uh they they emailed me and this this was a completely different editor this uh in a completely different department. I was working with Sarah Brinstad on Marvel Rising, which features Ms. Marvel and Squirrel Girl in a team up with um, America Chavez, uh, Quake, Daisy Johnson, Inferno, um, and Miles Morales was new to this series. So, uh, so it started with me. I kind of outlined uh, the full miniseries. Uh, um, the, the process was pretty fast paced to begin with because they were, they were kind of under the gun to get the first script in. So I came, I came up with a very loose concept of what the story was going to be. And then just like wrote the script as quickly as I could. And then after that, I was able to beat out the full outline and consider the rest of the story. Uh, so then Basically, like I would work with Sarah, she would go over the outline and we kind of, you know, hash out what all the beats of each issue was going to be. And uh, I would work on the scripts one by one first turned in chapter one. And she, Sarah, you know, I, I wrote that whole script 20 pages and turned them in. And then Sarah came back to me and I knew there were going to be notes, but she came back to me and said, um, we cannot send this script to the artist the way it is. You need to organize <laughs> these. Oh no. <laughs> and like, you know, me as an artist, I've always, I've written scripts for myself and I've written those very, you know, uh, those shorter stories and very fast, you know, quickly written scripts for those previous Marvel comics. And so I kind of, and in, in comics, there really isn't a script sh standard, you know, it's kind of up to every team. And so I'd always written my scripts to leave room for the artist to figure out like what they want the panel breakdowns to be. And even working with Callista on Creaky Acres, uh, you know, early on, she was going panel by panel and Eventually, I asked her to stop doing that because I was finding as I was thumbnailing that I was having to restructure the pages. Like sometimes there'd be too much information on a page and I'd have to break it up. And so I told her, you know what, don't worry about the panel breakdowns. I'll do that. And that'll that'll save Callista time on writing. And, you know, I'll have more control over the pacing of of the, the book. So that is that is not the way. Um Sarah wanted uh, these Marvel Marvel Rising scripts to look so, and she she kind of went through the whole chapter one script and showed me what she wanted, and it made a lot of sense. It was basically, you know, every every panel like has structure. So you're, it's basically panel one. This is the description for that panel. This is the dialogue for that panel, panel two. And it's like the same structure throughout. And so I learned to write that way. And it, you know, it made a lot of sense to me because it actually controls how much information you can cram into a panel. Like if you've got like one block of text for the description and then, you know, all the dialogue lined up together, you can see, okay, like you can't have four bubbles, four speech bubbles in this one panel. You're going to have to, you know, drop some of those speech bubbles down to the next panel. And so it really helped me control the pacing of the story. So, so we did that process for 
every issue. I would finish the script with uh, Sarah's edits and we'd go back and forth. Um, and then she would hand the script over to the artist. And I have no clue what happened then because me and the artist never communicated. There was no email chain. You know, I worked with Sarah, the artist worked with Sarah and that was it. So it was very, I think, um, a very clean process in that sense. I'm glad you are talking through all of this because I think it, it really underlines how much it's not even publisher by publisher, but project by project and editor by editor, how these things get organized. And there really is no standard. Exactly. So I'm very glad that you, you really laid this out. Like one of the books I'm editing right now just ended up being written in screenplay format because uh. it ended up like the person who wrote it was comfortable writing that way. And the artist was like you was like, I'd really rather do the page and panel breakdowns myself. And so great. Everybody's happy. Right. But other books I've worked on, it was much more like that where it's like, no, no page and panel. There needs to be this very specific format. You have to do it this way. This is what the artist wants. This is what the editor wants. And yeah. And same, same publisher, totally different processes. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, like it's, it's really just whatever works, you know, like if you, and it, it takes, it takes having communication and everyone knowing what every, everyone else's expectations are. So, you know, as long as you can all in, agree on a process, how you get there isn't as important. So that's editing. Yes. How about design? Uh, <laughs> that's a good response. Uh, I expect lots of exciting stories now. Where, where should we begin? Um, well, so MFK. So MFK. Uh, can begin chronologically, unless you'd like to begin somewhere else. MFK is fine. So MFK was designed entirely by me and designed for the internet, but I also went into it kind of knowing that I may want to publish these books one day. And so it's got, I think, a pretty, you know, traditional page set up. It's like six inches by nine inches, which is kind of the, the comic floppy standard. And at the beginning, I was publishing the book myself. So I, I was, um, you know, compiling the art and getting it ready for print and sending it to a printer out in Pennsylvania, Kness, which is a great indie printer. Yeah. And getting the books back and selling them myself. And when insight came on the scene, so the art was mostly ready to go. Um, I did, I did tell insight early on that, uh, the font was a problem because I changed fonts in the middle of the series because, <laughs> you know, I was publishing the book by myself and I could. And so I wanted them to be consistent for the graphic novel. And so Insight was like, don't worry about that. We'll take care of it and just send the art. So uh, I, I sent over those files. My process with comics is I work in Clip Studio Paint primarily. So I thumbnail, I thumbnail traditionally, usually just in a sketchbook and scan those pages in. And, and that's how I lay out every page. I just take that thumbnail and enlarge it and place the panels as I want them to be. And then I pencil over them digitally. Um, and Clip Studio Paint, the reason I use it is it's, it's got a lot of tools specifically designed for illustrating comics. So it's got panel borders, it's got speech bubbles, you know, so that stuff I don't have to think too, too deeply about. Uh, So I'll lay out the page and pencil it and ink it. It also clip studio paint also has great brushes for inking. So I do all of that in clip studio paint. Then I transfer it as a PSD file into Photoshop and I paint it there. And I, I recently updated Clip Studio, um, which nowadays has more sophisticated painting abilities. So for Creaky Acres, I might just do everything in Clip Studio. I haven't really decided yet. Um, so yeah, that was my process for MFK. So you've worked with a bunch of different kinds of design. I mean, you've had a lot of different design experiences because you've been a cover artist and an interior artist and a cartoonist and like you've, I assume 
dealt with art directors in a lot of different capacities. Right. And dealt with art directors in various stages of their career. So like with, <laughs> with Fiewell Friends at Macmillan and uh, How to Find a Fox, which was my very first picture book. Uh, it, it was a very, it was a mostly streamlined process. Uh, so to start, I worked with the editor on the text and then a designer was assigned to the book and we worked together on the art. Basically she gave me notes on what to fix and I would turn in those fixes and, you know, she would decide whether we were good to go or not. And then I had about four weeks to illustrate the entire book. So it was, and it's, it's a 40 page book. So I mean, that, that seems like not a lot of time. It, it was not. And it was kind of breakneck speed for me. Like I, I was kind of hoping for time to think about what I wanted the book to look like, but having a month, uh, kind of, you know, making a decision suddenly was not a priority. So I just, I just drew how I knew how to drew and painted how I knew how to paint and hope for the best. Um, we, I was actually surprised how much control I had over the cover because that's, you know, that's kind of a sticking point in publishing and especially in Kidlet. Uh, one bookseller in particular is, you know, very specific about covers and so I was expecting a lot of notes and we did go through a few different versions. I, I did a range of sketches and the designer and the editor whittled down uh, and actually took two of my sketches and combined them. And that became the final picture book cover. And we worked, we went through a few different revisions, but it was for the most part, pretty, pretty simple. Like I feel like overall I had a lot of control over how the book looked. Um, and then the designer, you, she did all the typesetting. She picked the fonts and everything and, you know, made the final result all nice and pretty. How, how did the cover process go with MFK? Was it different than that? No, I, I, once again, I felt like I had a, a lot more control than I expected. I, I gave them thumbnails and they, they picked the one that they liked the best and I drew it. And actually, you know, when I was working on how to find a Fox, uh, the main note I got on the cover was in my original painting. She kind of had the, the little girl on the cover kind of had, um, a, a bit of a frown, just like a very intense, like concentrating face, which is kind of a face that she makes in the interior of the book. But, for the outward facing cover of the book, they, they wanted her to smile. And so I, the, most of the revisions that I went through was getting the smile right. And I, I have very strong feelings about making girls and particularly black girls smile in art. So it was kind of like, I will, I will eat this, uh, you know, I will eat this edit, but I'm not entirely happy about it. And then with MFK, uh, once again, I wanted to have a black girl on the cover who wasn't smiling. And that's what I drew in Inside Editions was like, great. And I was kind of like, really? Y y'all, are, y'all are letting me do this? Really? And it was kind of a surprise for me that what I drew was kind of what they took. So you're all ready for a fight that did not come. Right, exactly. <laughs> that's always nice. It, it's true. Yes. How exactly do those conversations with the designer go when you're like, okay, so I did three sketches and maybe I prefer this one and maybe I have thoughts about always making black girls smile all the time and how that's appropriate. Like how much do you kind of speak up and say those things and how much are you uh, – following what you are told by the publisher or making, your, or making your agent talk to them about it. So, uh, you know, for me, it's entirely down to the project and I feel that I'm a pretty flexible person. 
you know, I've actually been thinking a lot recently that maybe I should fight more on things. But in general, you know, I really just want the client to be happy. So I'm willing to work with them. Uh, and, you know, if you've got a good rapport with a client or a writer that you're working with and you can communicate, you know, if they can explain their rationale to me about what they want and it makes sense, then I'm happy to work with it. I feel that I've had to fight for what I wanted very few times in my career. Um, most recently it was with, uh, Nami and Coquila and, and I, I hesitate to say fight because, Nami and I have a very good relationship and it's because we have a good relationship and she's so very understanding that we were able to have this conversation, but we did have to have a phone conversation about what some of the characters in Creaky Acres look like. So there, there are a couple of characters with glasses and there are a couple of characters who are fat. And as a fat woman who wears glasses, I, I had very strong feelings about their representation. And so that was definitely a, a conversation that we had to have. And I came in ready to swing. Like I was like, I will fight you on this. This is something that I'm not going to back down on. And Nami was kind of like we don't need to fight. I just wanted to talk about it. It's I'm doing my due diligence as an editor. It's fine. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's fine. Then <laughs> other jobs. So like say with the dactyl Hill squad, which is a middle grade, um, you know, it's a novel written by Daniel Jose older. Uh, I'm working entirely with his characters. So I was kind of taking his lead and the art directors and the editorial team's lead on what everything should look like. And I had the novel to, to refer to, like I had all of the, um, the character descriptions to refer to. And Daniel would tell me like, Hey, this character needs to have darker skin. This character needs to have lighter skin. And, you know, we would work together on, you know, every character's uh, appearance. And Daniel luckily also strongly uh, believes in letting brown characters frown or, you know, look serious. So uh, that, that was, that was pretty easy going, I think. Um, then, then there is Heroes of Olympus by Rick Reardon and Disney Hyperion. And that was, an entirely different experience because it's once again, a property written by another writer, but now this is something hugely high profile. Like this is an internationally known and beloved children's book series. And so there were very, uh, very specific uh, requirements for how the characters look and how they emote and, you know, everything from their, their body type to the clothing they wear to the color of their hair, that all has to, that all has like a lot of history. You know, these books are 10 and 15 years old and that is a history that fans know and it has to be respected. So there was a lot of pressure there to get things right. And we went through a lot of revisions. Like that was probably one of the most intense jobs I've ever taken. Um, okay, so after design, what about the marketing publicity part of things like promoting the book? How has that experience working with a publisher been? Because that one varies a lot. Yeah. So when I published How to Find a Fox, um, my editor emailed me and copied Macmillan's publicity person. And she was like, let me introduce you to this publicity person. Uh, she's here to help you if you need it. And I was like, okay, thanks. And I was thinking to myself, what does a publicist do? <laughs> like, <laughs> why do I need this person? <laughs> and so, An excellent question. Yeah. You see those web pages that are like, how to publicize your book. And I still was kind of like, I, I, I know what, you know, I know strategies for publicizing a book, but I don't know what a publisher's publicist does specifically. So I never emailed her. And, you know, I, I, I kind of went in knowing that generally authors are kind of expected to do their own marketing and publicity for a mid-list book. You know, that's not getting 
too much attention from the publisher, though I will say, uh, you know, one of the reasons it takes so long to get a book published is because there's so much time spent traveling like the conference circuit. And so those months leading up to the book's release were very interesting because I got to see Macmillan, you know, taking How to Find a Fox to conferences, not places that I was attending, but they would they would tweet about it and then attendees would tweet about it. And so I could kind of see, you know, oh, they've got my book there. And now and then Macmillan too would also email to show us like postcards that they were deciding to send out to teachers' classrooms, you know, that sort of thing. So it was a very, you know, a very small peek into their usual book publicity, but I, I'm worried about my little book. They've got a whole seasonal catalog that they're promoting. So when Fox released, I coordinated my own book launch and mostly didn't know what I was doing. I I had a local, you know, signing and partying party and um I would go home to Maryland. I live in Los Angeles, but I'm from Maryland and I would uh go visit some old teachers and librarians and read for kids at, you know, my old school. It kind of took a turn um, for me the following year because as an indie artist, I I was already kind of familiar with doing this sort of thing because I do artist alley at conventions. And so I started incorporating the book into my convention sales. So, you know, along with all the prints and stuff I had, I also started taking my picture book and I, you know, in this process, I would have to email my editor and say, Hey, I want to have copies of my book to sell at this convention. How do I do that? And then my editor would email the publicist and then would email you, Gina, to set those yeah, things some, up. I remember those emails. Sometimes I would email you back and be like, oh, it's a Comic-Con. I know how to do this one. Yeah. And so I, you know, that was kind of the year that I realized, oh, I should have been telling my publicist this entire time when I was out, you know, promoting my book. And, and that's what she's for, because then she can coordinate with the rest of Macmillan to help support me. And it was really cool. God, was it last year or the year before? I think uh, 2017. But I was at Emerald City Comic Con, and for a second, also has a booth at Emerald City, and so they set up a time for me to sign. And it was a Sunday afternoon, and I had to like run across the entire convention center, which took forever. So I was a few minutes late, and by the time I got to the booth, like for a second had like a whole line waiting of people for me to sign how to find a fox. And the book actually sold out that day. You know, it was very cool. And I, that was kind of when I realized, Oh, like this is what a publicist does. I I also just want to say here that I really recommend that you're at the point when your, your editor is like, here's your publicist or here's your marketing person. It can, it can be really helpful to email and say, can you tell me a little bit about what you do, what you would like me to do for you, how you want us to work together, what the plans are for this book so I can tell you what I have planned? Um, You know, I think I think that can be that can be very helpful for publicists to be able to say, oh, you're doing all these conventions, and you're doing this, this signing, that's great. You know, these are the ways that I can help. Or if you're doing that, I can organize some more things like that. If you're if you're wanting to do this sort of thing. You know, you talked a little bit about like going to talk at libraries and going talk to talk at schools. It's tough for a publicist to be like, I have psychically deduced that this author is going to want to do that sort of thing. So I should just, you know, try to set it up spontaneously. Right. Um, But if, for example, you write and say, hey, I'm interested in this, uh, that can help out. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's probably something I should be doing even now (laughs) that I never do. I, 
you know, I'm, and especially when I'm just like work for hire illustrating someone else's book, I'm just like, well, okay, that was a thing I did. And I'm starting to realize now that, oh, that's also my book too. It's not just the writer's book and I can help promote it. But so I, you know, I feel like I'm getting a little more into the marketing and promotional process now. Um, my first couple of books didn't really have much of a push. Nowadays, I find that publishers are reaching out to me more to say, hey, like, what shows are you going to be at? What events are you going to be at? You know, how much involvement can we expect from you in promoting this book? But it's also, you know, now that I'm kind of getting better at knowing what I can do, I'm also like starting to pay attention to more marketing and promo opportunities for the books I work on. So like, you know, Dactyl Hill Squad, if ever I'm at a signing or a book event for anything remotely related to children's books, I'll include like, hey, Dactyl Hill Squad is a book I worked on. You should have copies at your event so people can buy it and I can sign, uh, that sort of thing. So what about sales? Have you seen kind of the the sales reach or the sales process change or be different between different publishers that you're working with? Mm. I don't know how sales work at all. Um, you know, I get the royalty statements from some of my publishers, from Macmillan and uh, Inside Edition specifically. Marvel never sends me royalty statements. Sometimes they'll send me a royalty check and then I'll know, oh, I guess people are still buying that book. But uh, for the most part, the best way to track sales, like, what is it, that Nielsen scan thing? Book scan. Yeah, like, I don't know, is that like a working thing? (laughs) It is, although we did specifically tell people to not go look at it because it will make them sad. Because it will never be as high as you want it to be. <laughs> or the wrong book will be selling. They'll be like, no, stop buying that book. Buy this other book that's better than that book. Yeah, I used to, you know, I used to track it every day, like, especially after MFK came out, you know, and that's usually when I look at it, like once a book releases, I'm like every single day, like, oh, what are sales like today? But then after the first week, there's a huge fall off, you know, you'll sell like hundreds of copies maybe in that first week. And then the next week it's like 50 and then it just continues falling from there. And so I haven't looked at it in a very long time. I mostly just rely on seeing the royalty statements. That is very wise. And, you know, seeing copies of it in stores. So we've talked about this a little bit, but do you have any other, anything else you'd like to say in terms of like what your strategies are for communicating with your publisher, like in terms of like professionalism or sort of best practices that you've sort of arrived at over time? Mm, I try to keep as open communication as possible. Honesty is, you know, my, my priorities. Like when it comes to difficult things, like I don't think I'm going to hit this deadline. I, I try to be upfront about that and let editors know Sometimes I I am late on things and I don't get, you know, the work done as quickly as I want it to be. But also editors sometimes are late with things and they don't get feedback to me as quickly as they need to. And so I think there's kind of mutual understanding, like sometimes these projects don't go the way you expect. As long as they're in the loop on how I'm progressing, you know, that's something that we can work with. Yeah, I mean, communication is something that you've brought up a few times, I think, in this interview. So it seems like something you think is pretty important. Right. And luckily, it's been only a few times. But when there arises a situation that I'm about to lose my cool, like, I I will talk to an editor or a writer or designer or whoever. And, you know, I try to be as cordial and professional and understanding as possible at all times. If I feel like I can no longer do that, that's when I talk to my agent. And she's always happy to step in for me if things take a, you know, a dark turn. I've never had a situation where a bridge was burned and like, you know, the ground is salted and I can never go back to that publisher again, largely because usually has my back before it gets to that point. 
And that is that kind of the role for your agent? Is your agent getting involved in those kind of contentious situations exclusively? Or do you rely on your agent for kind of other kinds of things with your publisher also? Um, I, I think she would see her priority as monitoring my schedule. So, you know, she's kind of there to sometimes make sure that everything's on schedule that, you know, nothing's, nothing's about to blow up in my face. Um, she's there to, uh, to oversee the contracts. So making sure that I know where to sign and making sure I send those contracts out. And also on certain projects, not every project, but on the ones where, she has negotiated that deal. She's also overseeing payments. So the publisher is paying the agency, the agency is paying me. There are some jobs that are work for hire and she isn't quite as involved. So those are ones where the editor and the publisher are working directly with me on everything. But even those like my agent and I, and not every, you know, not every author agent relationship is like this. Again, communication, this is something we have talked about. So if there is a job that I negotiated and she did not negotiate, but it's taking a downward turn and I can't do it alone anymore, she will step in. But she only comes in if I ask her to in those situations. So it sounds like you're like, I'm about to burn this bridge behind me. Please keep me from doing that. Right, exactly. Like, <laughs> I can't be nice anymore. You, you know, tag, you're in. There's definitely a subcategory of back channeling that is the, I have pulled the pin out of this grenade. Please keep me from throwing it into this conversation. I'm basically halfway there. I need you to talk me out of it. Yes, like. Very infrequently, but I have reached those moments on various projects where I guess it's a panic attack where you're just like ready to flip a table and say like, I, I'm done. I am packing up my belongings and moving to a different country and changing my name. And this isn't going to fix the problem at all, but it's, you know, what I'm about to do because I don't know what else to do. Uh, and, you know, that's when I email my agent and say, I can't take it anymore. And she's like, okay, it's fine. I got it. You know, I bring her in at those moments where it just seems hopeless and I don't know what else to do. And she's very good at showing me that actually the world is not ending and you will have a career past this. <laughs> and maybe this situation is completely salvageable. And Usually it is like, usually it just takes communication and that has saved so many of my relationships. So this seems like a great time to talk about professionalism. Yeah. Obviously these are all, you know, professional relationships. You're doing professional work with these people, but of course, through the process of working with someone for months and years, you know, working with your agent for years and years for people like NAMI on Creaky Acres, which has been like, that's been going on for quite some time. Like, how do you draw the line between kind of like personal interactions and professional interactions? Are you kind of going into this being like, at all times, I will be like professional hat person? Mm -hmm. Or do you kind of put yourself out there and, you know, especially when you're making these personal creative projects? No, I never put myself out there. And so that, that decision is very easy for me. I, I'm always professional because I, I'm also kind of a standoffish person. <laughs> so, you know, maintaining a certain level of distance is my default. I, I don't like to get terribly personal. That said, I, I do try to cultivate in most instances, a pretty friendly rapport with the editors and writers and publishers I'm working with. Um, and sometimes like where to draw the line just kind of naturally, uh, manifests itself in the course of talking through email and hitting moments of frustration together. Um, and usually I think 
for the most part, I feel like the other person is the first one to break form. And then I, I kind of just like go with it. I'm pretty flexible. So, you know, at the start of the relationship, when we don't really know each other very well, all of my emails are, you know, like, hello, good to hear from you. Thank you. I very much appreciate this. You know, best wishes. Have a great weekend. Sincerely. And then the moment somebody uses like, LOL, then it's like, okay, our relationship <laughs> changed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so I definitely remember that transition in several of my professional relationships. Oh, yeah. Related the emoji transition. Oh, I feel like that's another big one. Oh, yeah. And then also the gift transition. Oh, yeah. I haven't made it to that one, but I'm not really a gift person. Uh, uh, I, I love a good gift. I don't always use them in email, but if if somebody opens that door, then I'm all over it. There's also like a talking about pets level. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which you know, is sometimes unexpected, like with a, I've got a new picture book that's being published by Versify and the art director in her first email opened that door and started talking about cats. Um, but usually I try to, I try to remain as professional as long as possible until we both kind of understand each other and, you know, like, how the other person works. I actually have a specific question because I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Um, How do you make decisions about like personal information that feels personal and like not part of your professional relationship and personal information where you're like, I actually feel like this is relevant context for this piece of information I'm giving you. It was like, for instance, like, do you just say, I can't do this this week? Or do you say, I can't do this this week? My, elephant just died like how do you kind of figure out like where to sort of draw that line in terms of how you're negotiating these relationships with different people um it's just kind of like a gut instinct thing yeah i think it's a gut instinct thing i think it depends on what sort of relationship we've cultivated till at that point like you know, I have one art director at Scholastic who will say, I'm going to be out of town this week. And so I feel comfortable saying, oh, well, if you're going to be out of town, just FYI, I'm also going to be out of town. But I don't think I'll usually tell him where I'm going. You know, I will give as much information as needed so that they understand the situation. But say with a day job, my philosophy is, you know, if your company allows sick days, you can take a sick day, but it's not necessarily the company's business to know what you're doing on that sick day. And so generally, like, I'll say, hey, I'm taking a sick day, but I won't explain where I'm going. And that's kind of the approach I take with emails. Like, if I if I do think personal information is necessary to understanding the situation and maybe like letting them know everything's fine, you don't need to freak out, um, then I will volunteer that information. But I, I tend to just naturally hold back as much as I can. You know, I said like honesty is the best policy, but... <sighs> I don't need other people that I don't know very well, like to know the intimate details of my life. So I will say, you know, like, Hey, I'm going to be away from the computer for a few days, but I'm not going to say why that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, this is something that I thought about a lot a few years ago when I was getting my master's degree, Mm -hmm. uh, because I was getting my master's degree, which is a whole big undertaking And it was taking up, you know, some amount of my brain space, but, you know, in a way where I had kind of like plotted out, like, I will still be able to do my job. This is very reasonable. Um, But then I would have these conversations with new authors where they're like, oh, like, you know, Hmm. what are you doing tonight? And I would be like, thinking to myself, like, well, I have class for three hours, but In the same way, I wouldn't actually be like, well, actually, like a thing that's taking up a large chunk of my like mental energy right now is getting my master's degree. Uh, Because I feel like, you know, if I'm talking to these people, and I'm maybe emailing them once a month, like continually emailing them about this 
thing that I'm doing that's not related to my job and not related to their book and not related actually to like anything that's in that professional thing. Right. Uh, that like professional scene is kind of like might make them have the impression that, for example, I was more interested in my master's degree than their book or my job, which wasn't at all the case. Like I was like, my master's degree, this is the thing I'm doing in my spare time. But it would just constantly come to me as a like, you know, I I can make conversation about this, but maybe instead I'll like make conversation about stuff that's happening in the office uh, instead of talking about all of the stuff that I'm doing that's not office related. Since we're all sharing. Sure. I will say, I, I actually just had to make this decision. I actually didn't even think about this until I asked you this question because normally I will just say, for instance, yeah, I'm going out of town Mm -hmm. or I'll be in transit or I'll be on an airplane or like whatever because it can be relevant about whether or not I'll be able to answer emails. But I'm about to be in Australia for three weeks. And so I did specifically tell people, hello, people I communicate with regularly. I'm going to be in Australia for three weeks on these dates because it was like, I will not only be sporadically out of, you know, in and out of communication, I will also be in a completely different time zone than I normally am, Yeah, which seems like a relevant piece of information. Like, not only will I not be checking my emails regularly, I will be asleep most of the time that you are awake. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And that, and that, you know, that is vital information to the relationship. Yeah. I think a lot of it depends on like what context other people have for your life and your career. That that balance of personal and professional is always interesting. And it's always, I think, situational for every different relationship and every different moment. There was a, a great tweet. And I think the person deleted it, which breaks my heart because it was so good. But they made this tweet that was like, I'm in the park today and it's so beautiful unless you're a client. And then in that case, I'm at home working on your project. (laughs) Yeah, it's so important. But, you know, as you said, like, you know, providing vital information, case in point earlier this year, I let my editors know, hey, I'm going to be away from the computer and away from my workstation for a week because I'm going to be in New York City. So, hey, can we get together? And that seems very useful. Yeah. And that and that is another way to elevate the relationship. So, you know, I, I went to New York City and had like meetings and lunch and coffee with a lot of the people that I'm currently working with. And so... I think this, you know, that was something to create a level of personalization in our relationship that we didn't have before. So now they kind of know who I am and I know who they are past the computer screen. And so we can, you know, have more, I don't want to say intimate, but we can have a wider range of conversation because there's more context to our relationship. When you're reading their words on a screen, you can hear their voice saying it in a way you couldn't before. Exactly. Yeah. And it makes a huge difference. It makes a difference, you know, to like understanding their intent um, and their wording, you know, to a lot of different things. You know, when you can take advantage of it, it's great. I feel like we've covered most of what we wanted to talk about. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about in terms of uh, your experience working with different publishers uh, and any advice you have for people? Once again, open communication is key. If you have a question, even if you think it's super dumb, just ask it. Just like Gina was saying, like if you don't understand what a publicist does, just ask them, hey, what do you do? Which is something that that is a lesson that I've actually learned and I still don't do it. <laughs> so, you know, just just ask questions, you know, be honest about your capabilities, uh, never over promise what you're not sure you can deliver. Always, you know, ask for more time than you think you're going to need to on a project. Um, be precious about those sort of things because the schedule never goes the way you expect it. Never. So always keep that in mind. 
Nyla, for all the, the humans listening to this who are now inspired to look more into your work, where can people find you online? Uh, the best way is my website, nylamagruder.com. It has all my social media. I'm in most places as Nylawful. That's N-I-L-A-F-F-L-E, except on Instagram where I'm Nyla Magruder. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Oh, thank you for having me. Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Allison Wilgus and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. You can follow us on Twitter at Graphic Novel TK or email us at graphicnoveltk at gmail.com. I believe this is awful. Hold on. Let me just verify this knee. Oh, big mood though. Like (laughs) a big, huge mood of, Oh, I don't know. That was a while ago. (laughs) Yeah. I literally haven't thought about this company in years, but I feel like to be thorough, I will mention it. Sometimes I'm going through my files and I find something in my freelance folder where I'm like, I literally have no memory of having made this piece of art. Oh my God. Yes. That, yes. I know that feeling. They did the Walking Dead cookbook. They do a lot of art books for DC and Marvel. And- I'm sorry, Walking Dead cookbook? Yeah. That is okay. A th- <laughs> I'm just going to put a pin in that to Google that later. I'm sorry. Please continue. <laughs>